0: Been here for years, or Jane by my peers, putting suckers and sears, wearing bow tests for years. Tank top and tears, Roy Taylor and beers, years Breaking shots, watering the crops, cleaning the mops,
1: crop- I, I think it probably had in my mind would be maybe B plus or something like that. Yeah, that's 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 you know, pretty good. He, he was gifted, you know, but you know, did not excel in the way that Know the Aikmans and the Starbacks have done in history for the Cowboys,
2: he's a tragic hero, actually. I think I I view him as you know this incredibly gifted, not just player, but I think person,
0: cardiac ophthalmology. So we can hear with the new ear epistemology, setting free with the now adopted genealogy, glorifying God and.
3: This is iHeartPCA. This is Doug Servant. I'm here in Oklahoma City on a cloudy Friday, Justin. Always cloudy. And we are coming out to you about what is good, believable, beautiful about the PCA. We know there's stuff we could talk about on the other hand, and we'll get to those. We may have a whole podcast about stuff we don't like, Justin, like just air our grievances, like Festivus. Festivus, yeah. Yeah, so tell me who you are, who who, who we got, What wh- where are you at, what's going on? Is it pretty, beautiful, sunny, rainy? I don't know.
2: Doug, I'm in Albuquerque, and it is smoky, actually. We have the smoke from the Tucson uh, wildfires that's kind of lingered in the last couple of days, and so air quality is poor, but it's always sunny in uh, New Mexico, man. i oh, sorry to hear that.
3: Justin, I want to ask you today about sports events you have witnessed live because the 30 for 30 just came out where Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa was at, uh, featured that summer. And I was at every single home game in September in St. Louis. So I saw incredible 15 or so home runs. I saw when he beat the record, I saw I was there for number 62. And on the last day, he hit two home runs, and I was there for both of those. And I've got another one follow-up besides that, but I want to know what best, memorable, famous sports event you've been to.
2: So I was I, – I, I probably have two. One is more, uh, you know, less dramatic because I was at Kobe Bryant's, as you know, you were there too, at Kobe Bryant's uh, second to last game. But his last – road game of his career in Oklahoma city. I got to sit with my son down on the floor, but it was a, you know, he didn't play a lot, nothing like the next game where he got 60. And I wish I was at that one, but never could have got the floor seats in LA for that. And then, uh, but maybe the most like celebrated or famous is Texas tech beating Texas, uh, with the crab, crab tree catch, uh, from Graham Harrell, uh, that I set up in a box for that one. Came back from Dallas to watch it with some friends, and that was you know that was this historic night for Texas Tech football for sure, and a great game.
3: Right, I was there when Texas Tech beat OU. That was Sam Bradford. I think he might have been a sophomore, or junior, and he
2: yeah he I was there, was there for a that kickoff,
3: one too. and then it was the first play on offense, and he threw an interception and then tried to tackle the guy. I remember walking into that game saying, there's no way OU loses tonight and they lost. And it was like, they tried to come back at the very end.
2: Right, which everyone does against Texas Tech.
3: Yeah, but I was gonna say my really most famous game, I was at the five down game for Colorado Mizzou. And I was there, about 200,000 people say they were there, but really only 20,000 people were there. And I was one of those 20,000 people and that was a disaster. And I still feel like maybe Colorado should give back that championship. I think in 1990, I was pretty sure. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. So we're talking about in-person sports moments, which you and I have had a few of. We have. Not too many, not too noteworthy. So we maybe need to up that, but. We'll get to that some other time. We want to bring in our guest. Our guest is Stephen Garber. Stephen is an author, professor, and sometimes PCA member. I'm sure he's many other things. So I'm going to let him tell us all the things I left out. So Stephen, why don't you jump in, tell us who you are, what you're doing these days, how we can know about you. What's up?
1: Good morning, guys. Good to see you, or to talk with you, at least. Um, I should probably, just to keep the spirit of the day alive, tell you my most famous sports event in my life. So, um, you should. I was probably 14 or something around then, and uh, the NCAA, the AAU, I guess it was, um, sponsored a big track event in, uh, in a town near where I lived, and uh, this was in the the late 1960s and there were probably three or four world records broken that night but the one that was most memorable was Jim Ryan breaking the world record in the mile Mm. and uh, he was a skinny you know KU runner you know and not very old himself really but I remember we with my dad my brothers there just watching him race around this track four times and thinking and so in some ways not having any idea that I was watching history because, of course, it wasn't history at the time, but it became that, and it still is a major event in American sports life. And I was there that night. Wow! I know, yeah, that's so, incredible.
3: That's reaching so, back and like eclipsing what was, anything we talked about. Yeah. So that's awesome. Way to go! Was that in? Was, where was that?
1: I was trying to do that, guys. Actually, just to yeah. to one upmanship. I get upmanship, I'm pretty driven by that in my life. No.
3: So tell me who you are and what you're doing these days.
1: Uh, who am I What what I do these days? It's always a good question. I think a lot about the idea of vocation, and uh, I would always begin with somebody talking about the first question being, Who am I? Who are you? And that seems to me to be the most important place to begin. And uh, and then I would go to other questions like, Why are you? and, and What are you doing with your life? But who am I? While those I'm are
3: spoiler life, alerts. We're not going to get to all those quite yet, but a, so start I'm with... Yet.
1: Who you are and what you're doing these days. Born um, up the Rio Grande, which is, of course, where Justin lives in Albuquerque. But if you follow the river all the way north through New Mexico into Colorado, along the Sangre de Cristo range of mountains, I was born in the most beautifully named town in America, I think, called Monta Vista, Colorado. Mountain view, of course, for those who don't get Spanish very well, Monte Vista. And uh, I've always loved being able to write birthplace Monte Vista, Colorado. I grew up there. I grew up in California too in my life. So my first 20 years of life, I literally thought the whole universe was between Colorado and California. I didn't imagine there wasn't Oklahoma or uh, Pennsylvania or Virginia or any place really. I just thought it was all somehow the great Western mountains and valleys. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 30 years uh, and have been a professor for most of my life. The last three years, I have been here in Vancouver, British Columbia, where we still are for one more week, so we move back to Virginia. Um, but I've been teaching at Regent College, been professor of marketplace theology, or theology of the marketplace, and also giving leadership to a master's program in leadership theology and society. I'm married to a very good woman named Meg, We met in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. We we're 17 year olds, and she's the woman that I love to love. Mm-hmm. We have five kids and they're scattered about and, and have almost 10 grandchildren now, and I'd do anything in the whole world for them if they wanted me to to, to do that for them.
3: Amen. So, Stephen, tell me then how you got into or connected to the PCA and that story.
1: Sure. So I'm, both my wife and I, are born of Presbyterian heritage, back to the killing times in Scotland, uh, 300-some years ago. So uh, it isn't a, you know... It was a a terrible time in church history. People who are church historians, but I'm not one of them, would say it was probably as worse a persecution as ever happened in the history of the church than these first protestants, these first protesters, you know, uh, said no, and uh, we will not allow the king, you know, to be God, basically. We're going to argue for a distinction between the church and the state. It hadn't been done before in the history of the world, the church's history either. So the Presbyterians were really, you know, pushed to the edge and said, we will not go along. And my wife is Margaret, named after two Scottish Presbyterian martyrs, two Margaret's who were killed in those years. Uh, So both my, she and and I come from that history like that. Um, uh, I remember, you know, being um, in a home in Pennsylvania when I was in my early twenties of a man who was involved in the very first discussions about whether there could be a PCA and uh, uh, over the next two or three years began to be born, and I watched that take place. And, uh, for a while, my wife was the secretary or assistant of some sort to uh, Ford Lewis Battles, who was professor at uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and the translator with him was Battles edition of the Calvinist Institutes. And she would talk to him about great things in the PC USA at the time, I guess, whatever it was, what the acronym was. But, uh, and there was a great discouragement for him about, you know, watching, divisions and debates take place, and it was a weight upon his own life. And uh, So I would say I watched in some ways the PCA be born. I was a part of the Ligonier Valley Study Center for a couple of years of my life when that was being you know, in its heyday, and of course it was a part of the early you know, theological configuration that became the PCA. And, and uh, But I have watched and been a part of and been in and out of and, you know, over the course of many years. I have several kids who've worshiped at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville. A couple are still there with their families. And we have been worshiping the last three years here in Vancouver at Grace Presbyterian, which is a PCA congregation in Vancouver. Uh, and, uh, I've taught courses at Co- Covenant Seminary over the years. I've given dresses at Covenant College over the years. Uh, been part of the By Faith magazine over the years. Uh, a lot of my life, I would say, is had been, been between the Presbyterian and the PCA world in particular and near uh, Christianity more generally. So,
2: so Stephen, um, thanks for that really rich connection to uh, Presbyterianism and the PCA. Um, I'm thankful for uh, that narrative and uh, the ways that you've interacted with us. You know, Doug and I have experienced you teaching us it a PCA gathering. It's been great. So uh, I wanted to ask you about what's next. So your, you your program's ending at, at, you know, at Regent and what, what are you, uh, are you going to, you know, fancy off into retirement or you have
1: other um, more speaking and teaching co- coming up? Yeah, it's a good question, Justin. Well, the program is not ending, even though I would say, you know, part of the abruptness and whimpering end of our life here rather than a whimper rather than a bang um, is that Canada is a closed country and Vancouver is a closed city and Regent is a closed college. So in some ways there's not any reason for us to be here at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think thinking all these things through we've decided that we need to be home and our longer home is in in Virginia. Uh, When I was first asked to come here by the president some years ago, I said, no, I'm not interested in leaving my my long home, we have always lived, my wife and I, with these words as credo for our decision-making, to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. And we have always lived that way. So we have neighbors who belong, neighbors and friends to us in Virginia, Uh, people with a common sense of location together, but different occupations in our lives. And so, uh, so we came eventually though, and it was always seen as an adventure for Meg and I to see it in that way it up as an unexpected part of life. I would say clearly and easily, I'm glad that I came here. I'm eager to go home to enter back into the deeper, longer vocation of our lives. Uh, What will I do work-wise? Well, I don't think in terms of retirement uh, at this point in my life. And uh, I've been a professor for most of my life. I've written some books that have been born out of my teaching life and what I'm primarily wanting to work on for the next two years is another book, actually. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I want to breathe for a while because I've been very, very, very busy here. And uh, I'm going to breathe for a while that I want to enter back into thinking and reading and writing for a couple of years on a project that's become pretty important to me. So,
2: One of the ways that uh Steve and I were connected is we, uh, through Jim Belcher, Jim was a PCA pastor and uh, he had moved on to become a professor at Knox and I was taking a demon class at Knox with Jim and he introduced me to you, Stephen, through visions of vocation. It wasn't even published yet. He, You were gracious or your publisher was gracious enough to give my class a sneak peek of that book and he assigned it for our demon class and it literally, and I, I know maybe I've told you this, but it, it literally changed my life. Uh, that book, uh, the whole concept of knowing and loving. And huh. so I, I want to ask that before we go to the break um, is today, we sit in the midst of pandemic, which, you know, you're you're leaving uh, this beautiful place for part of that reason, you know, the consequences of what's happening worldwide. And, and then the, the issues of race and justice, uh, the deterioration of institutions that have, aren't able to speak into that. And so, like, knowing and loving is pretty challenging right now. Yeah. Um, and so, as you think about that kind of concept, covenantal epistemology, as you call it, how do we know and still love? What does that look like today, Stephen? This is a huge question, I know, but I know you've been thinking about it. Uh, probably often.
1: It is a huge question, and in some ways, even though I wrote a book about this, and you and I have talked about this, Justin, I think the longer I live, the more weighty the question becomes, comes to me. The more weighty it is that I understand the, you know, the burden of the question, can you know the world and still love the world? And uh, you know, as you and I have talked, Justin, it's not only true for, in some ways, the small things of your life and mine, it is true for the more public and complex responsibilities of your life and mine, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, if you, if you go ahead, Doug,
3: no, no, you keep going.
1: I mean, I would just say, I mean, if you just think through, I mean, it's often helpful to think about alternatives what could you do otherwise? And uh, I, mean, I know, Justin, you have a, a place in Colorado you like to go to to be quiet. You know, you could decide, well, Albuquerque is just too much of a mess for me right now. You know, there's police on the streets and counter protests on the streets and, you know, guys with guns on the streets who don't, shouldn't be there. And, you know, and I think I'll just go to Colorado and be quiet for for foreseeable future. You could do that. Would that be an evil thing? Probably not really. Uh, So in some ways we all could decide to say, you know, you know, I'm done with this, you know, right. That's of course true in, 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 in marriages too. I'm done with this, Mm. you know, just too hard. I can't figure out how I would know you and still love you. I can't do that, actually. Mm-hmm. In terms of social, political, cultural questions, you know, I think that in some ways the same things are true, actually. And uh, I've read a lot of Wendell Berry in my life, and had a chance to talk to him a few times, and, and uh, it surprised me, you know, beginning to read, you know, into the essays that you know most of us don't maybe don't know that he has done so much of. But, Every essay that he writes, I think, at some place in the essay, he says, you know, it's a lot like marriage. And so he's been examining some economic questions, some cultural, social question. He says, but you see, it's a lot like marriage. And I think it is true, actually. And so this dynamic relation between knowing and loving is, I would say, as deep for us as human beings, any question we have, I would argue, as you know, it's the most perennial of all questions. It's the most primordial of all questions. It goes back to the very Garden. and uh, so, you know, I'm living with these, with the pandemic, and living with the social, cultural unrest, and, and living with, you know, a fla- flailing economy. And where somebody yesterday, here's a, you know, a Canadian said to me, why are you going back to America? <laughs> you know, what brought you there? And uh, it's a good question in some ways. I... You know, I am not Bonhoeffer, you know, for a thousand reasons, I'm not Bonhoeffer. I've just been thinking about, you know, the decision you made to to leave what was a safer place in New York City to go home to Germany, too. And, you know, you know, Justin, that I'm pretty taken with this idea of seeing ourselves implicated for love's sake in the way of the world turns out. Mm-hmm. So there's something of that for me and going back and entering into you know, a different kind of complexity, a different kind of wound, a different kind of challenge. And, uh, but that's why we're doing this. So.
3: Thanks, Stephen. Um, the, the Wendell Berry reference is good. I think reading his chapter essays is a very worthwhile project, but I will say that his last chapter in Jabra Crow is the most moving chapter. Now I'm not sure the whole book is that way, but he led up to the book to get to that last chapter. And I I really feel like that was, is the most moving chapter I've ever read in my wow. entire life. Wow. And I also, we're about to break. So this is sponsored by White Blackbird Books. This is a podcast, uh, you know, sponsored by them. We're trying to do redemptive themes, um, but we also like doing redemptive themes of other books. And I'm literally, this is just for everyone listening. It's June 2020. And Visions for Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good, is 1079 on Amazon right now. Yeah. Originally price is $18. So I, I mean, get on this, grab that. It's a wonderful book. We'll talk more about some of the other books as we come back. I take a quick break and get more into it with Stephen Garber. Mm-hmm.
1: Hard Heart PCA is made possible by White Blackbird Books, a powerhouse, multi-person publishing house that works to promote great ideas for people you perhaps haven't heard from yet, like Ann Quakella. You'll want to get a copy of Doing God's Work and read about Ann's vision, passion, and what he has implemented in the city of Milwaukee. It's truly inspiring. Pastors out there will also appreciate the practical, kind, wise advice Randy Neighbors dishes out in Insufficient. He's pressing for pastoral competency while giving credit and glory
0: to Christ alone. Order Doing God's Work and Insufficient and other White Blackbird titles on Amazon. Give them a read and tell others what you think by
1: writing a review. iHeartPCA is also brought to you by Good Microphones. Good Microphones
3: everybody, this is uh, iHeartPCA. We're talking about what's good and beautiful in the PCA. We're talking to Stephen Garber, who is a professor, churchman, author. And the author part I want to get to because there's a book that I want to make sure I touch on. I often would say great books with bad covers <laughs> <laughs> and Fabric of Faithfulness I hate to say that. I don't hate to say that. You didn't get a great cover for a long time. It's been updated. It's way better. Mm -hmm. But I encountered this book in the mid-1990s. This book is a look at people that were still Christians, and you tracked their college years as to what were the conditions that they would say help them still be christians throughout and it, subsequently right? right and i sort of feel like i haven't read this book in a long time although i've recommended it a million times the basic thing was community like you need to be in a community of people so correct me if i'm wrong um is that tell me about the book fabric of
1: faithfulness it's a good question, Doug. You know, I completely agree with you about the cover. I did never, never, ever liked it at all. I didn't want it to be, and, you know, I did never want it to be, actually. And I remember looking at the proposed cover for several nights, just sitting looking at it across the living room, thinking, can I live with this? I don't think I can it. <laughs> it wasn't great. And it, I always thought, I'd, I'd meet her at an airport someplace, thinking, that's you, you know. She seemed like she was a troubled person who needed an Advil or something, you know. Um, anyway, uh, you're right about that. Uh, the book's had a remarkable reading over the years. It's had probably 30 printings and a couple different editions. and That's been surprising to me, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I got interested in this question a long time ago of what it, it is to sustain a vocation over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, vocation for me is a big word. It's a complex word. It has to account for a lot of things. But I would say that you know, it's the question of what is it that, that marks people who keep on keeping on in life? Uh, and uh, in my own early years, I began to be aware that there were some people, maybe a lot of people, maybe even majority of people, who start off well after, in their college, university years, and then for lots and lots of reasons of the world, the flesh, and the devil, simply just don't. They, they, they begin to f- slowly, slowly step away from what once mattered so much to them. That intrigued me, but it also weighted me down and it made me weep, actually, in my heart. And I wondered why that was. I did my PhD on that question, essentially, over the course of a number of years. And and, uh, so the book, on the one hand, looks at uh, why that connecting of what you believe with how you live is so difficult to do in a modernizing, postmodernizing world. But the second half of the book is really a look at a number of people who, it seemed to me, had emerged out of the valley of the diapers into their 40s who were still digging away at an honest faith. And it intrigued me to, who were you then in your college years? Because that was part of my study, was thinking that the college, university years were critical years for us in shaping who we're going to be for the rest of life. And the argument, you know, you've got part of it done, but the argument you know, more fully is that there seem to be three habits of heart that mark people who kept at it. Right. One was that they had formed a way of seeing the world that made, could make sense of faith in a pluralizing time of history, a secularizing, globalizing world we live in. You can say forming of a worldview, to put it in other terms, but a worldview that can make sense of that this is true, actually the way the world really is, isn't just by personal preference. The second was that they began in those university years to enter into a relationship with significant teachers who could, in some ways, embody the convictions they were forming for themselves. There was something about the words becoming flesh in the life of somebody they wanted to learn from that was important to forming the convictions, to having the ideas become more than words on a page of a book, which matters a lot to us, but isn't critical in that same sense. And the third is what you mentioned, I would say, that it was people who, from their university years on into their 40s, wherever they went from, you know, St. Louis to Oklahoma City to Albuquerque, wherever they ended up in the course of the next 20 years of life, they just kept choosing to find a community of kindred spirits, a community of like-hearted, like-minded people who, in some ways, could corporately say, we also believe this to be true, and we will try to live this way. Come on, be part of us together. So...
3: Well, I know for me, I encountered this book. So when did it come out? I think about 20 years ago, maybe. Yep. So I was, I must've been 30 and I was in seminary and I just fell in love with it. But it was because I was a college pastor or gonna be a college pastor. But now I've had college students, kids, right? So it, the book has changed for me, to like sort of recruit people to now like recruit my kids into uh-huh. what you're saying. Yeah. Because I think it's exactly right. But now as I've had my last child is going to be a freshman in college at Seattle Pacific actually. Oh, wow. And so I'm like, you need to do these three things, right? These are the three things that you got to do. So it's really changed to be more personal as a parent instead of personal as a mm. profession. So I really, I think it's, it's one of my favorite books. Thank you for writing it. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. What do you got next? Like you got something coming out right now?
1: Another book came out this winter, actually, called The Seamless Life, a tapestry of love and learning, worship and work. And it was an unusual, a first effort for InterVarsity Press to publish a book with photos of course, it was the first try for me to do that, too. It wasn't perfect. Some of the photos weren't all that I wanted them to be when they got published. I kind of groaned and winced over that, thinking, ah, oh, I'll give you a better photo than that. But um, anyway, it's, people think it's a beautiful book, and you know, it's uh, had a good reception. And, and uh, But it is, uh, it's, it's essays, it's short essays with photos going along with them. Uh, and again, the subtitle says most of it, I suppose. A Tapestry of Love and Learning, Worship and Work. So it's uh, being read and people are getting back to me about it. and I'm glad it has come out. So.
3: Stephen, have you watched any interesting movies in this coronavirus uh-huh. time that maybe uh-huh. you could suggest to us that we wouldn't know about?
1: Uh-huh. Well, this next book I want to do actually is born of two movies in some ways. It's also born of my life, generally speaking. But in some ways, I want to maybe enter into the book thinking about these two movies by Terence Malick, the Austin, Texas filmmaker. Uh, on the one hand, he actually is an honest Christian from all I can see about him. Uh, but when he goes, his films go to the Cannes, the presumptuous French film festival, C-A-N-N-E-S. He gets the, the gold medals, the, the, the blue ribbons for his films. So he's seen as sort of the best of the best filmmakers in the world. Uh, but you know, I would never say his films are the kind of films that everyone wants to watch on Friday night. They're not that variety, typically. Um, um, but the two films are a movie seven years ago called The Tree of Life, and then recently this this winter called A Hidden Life. And uh, I want to. This book is going to be a book looking at the, the tension that exists for all of us between what we would call meta-narrative and narrative. Mm-hmm. Sort of the grand story of life, all of, all of history, the whole, the whole of the universe, which is what the Tree of Life is about. And for those of us who claim PCA theological convictions, we are Augustinian in our doing so, of course. And it was St. Augustine it was the first person to articulate this creation, fall, redemption, consummation meta narrative uh, with passe picare, passe non picare, and non passe non picare, and, and on and on through. She so was the first person that we know about in the church's history to articulate this four-chapter story of, of, of God's work in the world. And incredibly, Terrence and Malick, without ever naming the story or naming the chapters, The Tree of Life is that film. It's that story, actually. We have eyes to see, which is always the big question for all of us. He actually has, you know, it's four, four sections in the film, four stories, and they're linked together by this creation to consummation story, the meta-narrative of biblical history. Biblical reality. Uh, The Hidden Life is not that film, though. It came out this winter, and it's the story of one man's life, a narrative, to use that language here. Uh, A farmer in in the Austrian Alps in the 1940s, Nazism begins to come to plague Europe and Austria, finally the farming village that's his, and high in the mountains, and he's the only one in his village who says, I could not Heil Hitler. How could I possibly say those words? I don't believe them to be true. Everyone in his life, apart from his wife, who's a faithful friend and companion, everyone else says, "Come on, Franz. You know, nobody will ever even know. You know, it doesn't matter. They're just words. Just say the words, Franz." He says, "But I don't believe the words, really." And uh, the drama of the story is in him trying, him wrestling with what does it mean to say, "I cannot say those words." And what I want to explore is that relationship for all of us, all over the world, and. Uh, how do we work out what we believe to be true about all of reality in the context of the, the lives we all live day by day. And so a hidden life would be one that I think is worth people seeing. Um, uh, it is uh, a remarkable film. So, yeah, I think those two are top five for me now. Yeah. Uh,
2: true of life has always been one or two for me, uh, of films that I have loved and enjoyed and, uh, after seeing a hidden life um, this spring before the pandemic, it finally you know took forever to come out in Albuquerque. I kept waiting and waiting, and me I took my son uh, to it, my oldest son, you know, first chance we could, and um, you know he he didn't love it as much as me. Um, I think the trans transcendental kind of style that Malik uses is you know just different. It's a it's a learned process, but.
1: It's kind of like, in some ways, you know, going to a fancy pants restaurant, you know, which all of us don't do all the time, at least I don't. You know, right. Sort of sitting down to a multi-course fancy pants meal, and you think, wow, 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 really? Wow, yeah. I guess like too? And going to some place which is much more homegrown and down-to-earth, and you just stuff the food in your mouth and think, well, that was pretty good. It wasn't it? Really. Yeah. Um So Malik is that kind of filmmaker, I would say. Yeah. I would say another film that I saw this winter in this, you know, uh, Social isolation, time, and in some ways, I I did not watch it immediately. Just thinking, it's a big story to take in, and there's a lot in my life that's very weighty right now. But I finally, some months ago, watched *Just Mercy*, mm. and, uh, um, the Brian Stevenson story. Yeah. It's a powerful film, and it's a very important film to be thinking about right now. Of course, it was going, taking place mostly in America, with uh, you know, this being Juneteenth today. You know, on Stay in the world and and uh, uh, the, the poison pill that America swallowed in its very founding and slavery and what it means for us centuries later and how we're, the great question is, will we ever actually be free at last from the impact, the consequence of the poison pill? I don't know, really. It's a big question to me, but Just Mercy is a, it's a weighty film, but I would say in the best stories I know, um, uh, there's always some hint of hope in the story too. And uh, the story has that. And even though you have to work your way through much uh, complexity and much that's very, very wrong, much what's very, very evil and much that's very, very terrible, but the story doesn't end there either. And uh, so what Brian Stevenson doing in this work, and the film tells the story very well, uh, it would be a remarkably important film for all of us to see right now.
2: Yeah, indeed, Uh, it's such—it's so good, and performances are really good. But the book, even better, and to hear Brian Stevenson speak live, even better than that. So, um, yeah, thanks for sharing those 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 thoughts about those films. Those are great ones, Stephen. Last question, uh, you know, and so I like we we sometimes try to keep it light on this last question, but we've had some uh, discussion. You know, you'll chime in on my. Facebook wall every now and again with a take about Jerry Jones. And so uh, <laughs> so tell us how you uh, how you feel about Mr. Jones and the Dallas Cowboys.
1: Retard uh, yeah. and feathered before I go home. Tonight. <laughs> I, I mean, I th- are, you, you, are you a Redskin fan, Stephen? Is that? Not really? Pretty? I lived in Washington for a long time, but I did grow up in the West. And so, you know, there was a kid from my high school that played for the 49ers when I was a boy coming into the knowledge that there was an NFL in the world. And so, in some ways, I've always had a deeper place in my heart for the San Francisco 49ers. Wow, how did you feel about the Super Bowl? Were I
2: you disappointed? was
1: disappointed. No, I mean, I didn't care. In one sense, it was I was, I, I was happy it went the other way too. Yeah, I didn't care very much. I. You're too nice, Steven. You're too nice. <laughs> but the Cowboys. I mean, come on, Dustin. I mean, it's mostly just because I love you so much. I poke you. <laughs> But uh, you know, I was a kid in America in the 1960s, early 70s, when the Cowboys were named America's team. After all, that's yeah. right. Who was a quarterback? with well, a great Roger Staubach. Player. Roger Staubach. You know, and uh, who wouldn't want to be his fan? I yeah. person.
3: Stephen, how do you rate Tony Romo
2: in the <laughs> quarterback uh, rating? Uh-huh. And- Top ten. Top ten. Doug. Zone like kind of undoing but a lot of it was you know undoing done to him whether the injuries which definitely cut his career short but also you know in 2007 if if they beat the giants and they should have he had two key drops by his receivers that were both touchdowns um if, you, if those you, are if yeah. those are
1: caught like if his career and you would know that and you would have remembered that it been, oh it's, it's crushing yeah
2: yes yeah. yeah. To know and still love, Stephen. That's my motto when it comes to the Cowboys. <laughs> to know and still love.
1: Wow, but the real, wow. The way to go. Is, can you actually know Jerry Jones and still love Jerry Jones? I, I love Jerry. Ah! I do.
2: I know, I know. You hate <laughs> that I love him, but I so do. He's such a great personality and owner and, you know, maybe morally. And I mean, I wish he would have – I definitely wish he would speak about what's going on in our nation, but, um, you know – that is, there are some faults, no doubt. And let's just
3: say rooting for a team named the Redskins is also
1: problematic, right? <laughs> it probably is. I guess for a thousand reasons, especially because the owner's sort of the younger brother to Jerry Jones. So. That's true. He's the worst version. All right. So here
3: we are. We're we we at the word of the day. Stephen, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate you and your work. I've appreciated you for a long time. It's really awesome to get to talk to you on the phone and not just hear you or read you, but um, I'm really thankful for all your teaching and preaching and all that you're doing, not just in the PCA, of course, but in the world. And so I would highly recommend all of Stephen's works, uh, no matter how bad the cover is you're gonna get, but like they've been (laughs) updated and they're better, but like the upcoming works where he's already even talking about what's coming up, I think people, y'all should read these, get these. And so thank you, Stephen, for your input, not just into the PCA, but into the church, right? You know, CCO, you, you've had a different um, spots where you've been hidden. I'm really thankful Regent had you out. I'm excited for your next chapter. I have an, a big affection for Charlottesville, My daughter is a newspaper reporter there. So, um, like, I love that place, as conflicted as it is. And we're all in these conflicted places. So thank you um, for your work. And this is iHeartPCA, me and Justin, coming at every so often. I don't know. It's intermittent. So (laughs) thank you for listening, subscribing, giving us reviews. There's the call to action today is get Stephen Garber's books and read it and give him reviews because they will jack you up like they did Justin right and you can be Facebook friends with Stephen he can talk about the Jerry Jones with you that's right (laughs) all right thanks Stephen appreciate it
2: thanks Stephen all right
0: guard the scotland yard ain't something we'd ever disregard knowing nothing in life the calvinist theology the spirit changes that cardiac ophthalmology so we can hear with the new ear epistemology setting free with the now adopted genealogy glorifying god and enjoying him forever is the only endeavor whenever we're Die hard PCA, die hard PCA By far the PCA is the best PCA in the A